0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books. The Big Book. Cover to Cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: So if you have your Bible, we want you to open it to the book of Zechariah. And in this story, let's talk a little bit about the prophet himself. He was probably born in Babylon. And we talk about pre-exilic and post-exilic stories. Well, he would be a post-exilic child essentially. And so he is a contemporary of Haggai. He is also a prophet and priest in the sense that Jeremiah and Ezekiel were also. So he's unique in that way. Zechariah means essentially God remembers the name. It's pretty straightforward. And about 30 sometimes, depending on the English Bible you might use, you'll find people named Zechariah. So it was a name that the devout Jew liked to name their sons. The book of Zechariah is. Fascinating. It's the longest of the minor prophets. It's sometimes called the book of visions because you've got some pretty interesting, almost crazy language in some of the first part of the book. And so we just divide the book real simply into two parts. Chapters one to nine are called the night visions or the eight night visions that Zechariah had. And then we have chapters nine to 14, the second half of the book, which are the burdens or some Bibles use the word oracles, which I actually like better. The burden, it is heavy. It is hard information, but an oracle is that God is pronouncing something through the prophet uh, to his people. So it's this oracle that's just more than a, pay attention, this is the word of God coming to them clearly and specifically for a time that they're uh, having trouble. Now, to to sidebar a little bit about the book, Zechariah's book is referenced about 41 times in the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament authors quoted Zechariah or made allusions to what he taught 41 times. Extraordinary amount of information. And so, some of these phrases, as you read through, you're going to go, "Oh, I remember Jesus talking about. I remember reading about that in the in the, in the uh, account of Acts, where the apostles refer to these phrases." So it, it takes a lot of attention in the New Testament, rightly so. Now that said, uh, when has your church? Uh, taught through the book of Zechariah in detail. If this is a book that's cited 41 times in the New Testament, it's the longest of the minor prophets. It's got these crazy visions at some level, but they're important visions, and then how we uh, cipher through this. Let me read from a, a very old quote uh, in, in a, one commentator. Uh, George Robinson wrote, Zechariah is the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings of the Old Testament. One more time, the most messianic, it talks more about Jesus than any other minor prophet. It's truly apocalyptic, meaning end times, and eschatological, meaning the future times. So we think of the apocalypse or apocalyptic at the end of, let's call salvation history, eschatological, meaning the future. So he says, truly apocalyptic and eschatological writings of all of the Old Testament. Quite a statement. So again, why don't we study this more and why don't we teach it more? And of course, in the survey and overview, we can't get into too much detail, but I want to give you a sense of what the book is about. Uh, Our friends, Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa, again, I want you to hear what they have written in their great book, Talk Through the Bible. For a dozen years or more, the task of rebuilding the temple Had stood half completed. Zechariah is commissioned by God to encourage the people in the unfinished responsibility. Rather than exhorting them to action with strong words of rebuke, Zechariah seeks to encourage them to action by reminding them of the future importance of the temple. The temple must be built. For one day, Messiah's glory will inhabit it. Let me stop it for just a second. Remember, the temple complex, we'll talk more about this in a moment, is the place in the name where God chose for Solomon to build the complex. That goes back to Abraham's almost offering his son Isaac on the altar. It's the same Mount Moriah. But I love what they write. And so concisely, you miss it. For one day, Messiah's glory will inhabit that temple complex. And that's the future looking forward to. Uh, It won't be necessarily the way we envision someone living in a castle, but the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ will inhabit it. They continue, and I love this statement, but future blessing is contingent upon present obedience. Future blessing is contingent upon present obedience. The people are not merely building a structure. They are building a future With that as their motivation, uh, they can enter the building project with wholehearted zeal for their Messiah is coming. When I find a good commentator, I buy everything they write. And a woman named Joyce Baldwin, who's with the Lord now, she was born in 1921, a brilliant scholar, and she's written a lot of books, and they're part of this concise series on the Old Testament. And if you want to study minor prophets and some of the harder books like Malachi and Zechariah, she's your go-to. And so Joyce Baldwin writes uh, very well, and she's easy to read. It doesn't take a graduate degree to understand her, but she deals with the complexities of some of the Old Testament in a very good exegetical way. And I'm going to read some longer portions because she says so much so well, uh, far better than I could say on my own. So let me read from Joyce Baldwin. While based on present realities, Zechariah goes on to introduce glimpses of things from a heavenly standpoint. What a great line! It's not just about the horizontal view of life, it's how do we look down from heaven and see what God is up to? She continues God is working out his eternal purpose for Judah and Jerusalem, equipping his covenant people to fulfill the spiritual role which he chose for them. The prophet spells out in everyday terms the quality of life which they are to display. Again, she distills it so well that how we live this life, there's a spiritual application of it that we don't always understand. And that's what Zechariah is reminding. He chose Israel, not because they were better than the other Middle Eastern people groups. He chose them for reasons we'll never know. But they were his chosen people, his covenant promise, a stubborn and stiff-necked people. In some respects, we might say he chose them because they were the most difficult people. But he chose them for his purpose. And I love the way she captures that so well. She continues, the last six chapters, which will be 9 through 14, are dominated by struggle and tension. At first, the battle is local and God's people triumph. But later, the rejection of the good shepherd, mourning, and that's M-O-U-R-N, where sadness, the mourning and the slaughter of the shepherd intensify the sinister impression that evil forces are gaining control. Finally, they capture Jerusalem, and that is the signal for the Lord's intervention to establish his kingdom over all the earth. Now, let me go back to that phrase, the sinister impression that evil forces are gaining control i don't know if you're a news junkie i've been in uh, detox programs i i I am such a news political junkie sometimes i can waste hours on it and we we look at the media headlines today i'm not going to name names of political leaders around the world they're sinister some are just evil and you know nothing has changed nothing has changed your bible is as reliable today as it was when it was written Because nothing's changed, and God is still sovereign. Well, she continues, the book prepares God's people for the worst calamity they can ever face. Oh, this sounds fun. The triumph of evil over good. You heard that right. Evil is going to win in the short run. She continues, even God's representative dies at the hands of evil men. There's no room in Zechariah's thinking for glib optimism, the Brits know how to write. You just got to give it to them. No glib optimism, We're not, Oh, it's all going to be fine. Everything works out according to God's will. Don't worry about it. Don't you love people that say things like that? Joyce says, there's no glib optimism. There is no room for glib optimism. But when evil has done its worst, the Lord remains king and will be seen to be king by all the nations. So back to the Wilkinson comments about, it talks about uh, the apocalyptic time, but eschatologically, the future, the eschaton. This is all gonna be made right, and that's the hope. You and I, not different than the ancients, will live in between. And how we live faithfully when evil will triumph over good This is a long ball version, a long game version of what it means to follow Christ. Well, let's look at some recurring themes from the book of Zechariah. Unlike Haggai, who's very brief and to the point, Zechariah is a little longer. They align very closely. And I want to show you a little chart that uh, Wilkinson and Boa have given us that I thought was so helpful of a comparison of Haggai and Zechariah. I typically don't do this because it's it becomes sort of a bottomless pit we start comparing prophecies and minor prophets and it becomes pretty elongated but because these are so closely linked in the time period and the message was the same about the temple I want you to see the comparisons and contrast between Haggai who was according to them an exhorter he's he's calling them up Zechariah however was an encourager Very different. Uh, Some of you might have a parent who's an exhorter or one who's an encourager. Uh, That was wrong. Honey, let's do it differently. So you get the sense of it. Haggai was concrete. Uh, Zechariah obviously is abstract. And if you like prophetic literature, you're going to love those first eight night visions. Uh, Haggai was concise. Zechariah was longer. He's expanded. Haggai was present talking about what they were supposed to do. Why had they delayed get to work building it. And Zechariah talks about that, but he says there's a future implication here. This is about God's glory in the future, not just about you getting a, a building rebuilt. Uh, Haggai's exhortation, take part. Zechariah's, take heart. Be encouraged. And then finally, Haggai was an older activist. He was involved, and Zechariah is a much younger visionary. So that to me is a real helpful snapshot of looking at how we compare and contrast these two pieces of literature. Uh, As again uh, noted, we have Zechariah 41 sometimes specifically or uh, an allusion in the New Testament to what he wrote. But let me show you some other things. Remember, we're looking for repetition, for themes that come up again and recur. Keep that in mind. The land is referenced 22 times in this short book. The angel of the Lord declaring is mentioned 20 times. Let me take a quick pause here about the phrase, the angel of the Lord. Um, When you read in your Bible, the definite article, the, or the word angel capitalized, that's our translation uh, teams trying to help us lean into what this is. Not all Bibles do this and it's not consistent, but when it happens, pay close attention. The designation, the angel of the Lord, is talking about Jesus, And that's a a bit of a long side subject, but I just want you to know when the angel of the Lord says something in the way Zechariah is recording it, it's Christ speaking. And we'll talk perhaps a little bit about the Theophanies and Christophanies. I mentioned it many times. These are pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. But let's go on to these themes. Declaring the Lord, or a similar phrase occurs 20 times. The word of the Lord came, about 13 times, and then we have these three things that you probably know of. If you, if you know the book at all, you know about the plumb line. But twice we have a phrase, the measuring line. And so we see those only three times, but they're an important theme, and it's a unique part of the book. And then finally, your king is coming. And I want to read chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. This is that future part of it. We're going to have an apocalyptic experience. to evil's going to win but there'll be a future chapter they're not alive to witness. And Zechariah writes about this, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, The foal of a donkey. Remember, that's a reference in the New Testament Gospels when Jesus is riding the so called Hosanna trail on a donkey, not a horse. It's an animal of peace, not an animal of war, an animal of victory. Uh, Verse 10 I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. I'm going to deal away with the weapons of war the chariot was the most intimidating force they had in antiquity horses and chariots were uh, israel wasn't even supposed to have those technically speaking but their enemies did god wanted them to trust in him as their captain as him and their leader as him and their victor not their own armament but nevertheless uh, Zechariah is saying it won't matter even horses and chariots will be nothing toward the end uh, and the bow of war, which is a metaphor, of course, an archer, but it's the whole bow of war, the whole aggression of war, the bow of war will be cut off. You cut a bow, it's a useless tool, a neat picture. And he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to to the ends of the earth. So there's this future eschatological glimpse, even though evil's gonna triumph in their day, there is a great hope and a great future that they won't witness in their lifetime. Now, when you study prophetic literature, there's this problem, and let's think of a bell curve. There are people that will dismiss it, and there are people that that are gonna be overly ambitious in their interpretations. And you've probably been exposed to both. If you ever watch TV preachers, um, which uh, a friend of mine said, you know, during this season, we've all sort of become uh, televangelists overnight. Uh, but anyway, if you, if you listen to TV preachers, you're going to have a lot of um, outlandish, uh, uh, inventive, interesting pictures of these visions. They're going to go crazy with them. And um, on the other hand, is dismissing it right? I'm not for balance, I'm for accuracy. What does the text tell us? And that's why I'm a broken record on context. You have to understand, I have to understand the context which these stories are, are compiled, God speaking to his people. How did the Israelites in Judah, how they hear this? What did it mean to them as best we can ascertain? And then we back up the lens. And we go, what does it mean later in time? How much of these prophecies were fulfilled? How much are yet to be fulfilled? And that's the art and science of Bible study methodology. It's not as hard as it seems, but I think the continuum of dismissing it or having these overstated, ambitious, kind of creative things, both are wrong in the sense, don't just blow over it when it's hard and don't, don't uh, overly interpret it. Uh, look at plain language as best we can. It's always good to begin with the first presupposition, who was hearing this, what did it mean? And we go back to what's the problem? They had been in sin, they got into Babylonian exile, in three ways they've come back home, they've repatriated their country. The problem is everything's been destroyed and overrun, and God wanted them, first and foremost, to rebuild the temple, and they didn't do it. They stopped and they started. And that's where Haggai and Zechariah come in and say, you got to finish what God sent you back here to do first and foremost. Well, one thing I do want to try to do, even though we're in the limits of a survey and from a time perspective, I want to take you through chapter three in a little more detail and show you how some of these things apply and show you some insights that they would understand. And maybe you and I need some help understanding what is going on. So there are a number of characters in chapter three. The first one is the identity of Joshua, who's clearly, we know who this is. Secondly, the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, and then Satan. There are other characters, but those are the main three I want you to see in chapter three of the book of Zechariah. So let me read about these characters. And again, I remind you, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. You can think of the angel of the Lord with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can think of uh, the one who wrestled with Joshua and touched his his hip and he limped the rest of his life. Uh, You can think of when Abraham is offering a sacrifice and these three angels show up. And one is the lead angel. These are the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I happen to believe that uh, the creation account was the pre-incarnate Jesus making the universe, making the world as we see it. Um, You may disagree with me on that. I think those are pre-incarnate appearances uh, of Jesus Christ in our Old Testament. So with that, let's listen to chapter three, the first few verses, one and two. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And those of you that know about right and left hand, this is a very interesting point in our scripture. This is, I think, the only time we have Satan at the right hand mentioned. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, I want you to notice, first of all, the verb standing. Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. Why? Why does Zechariah, why does God want him to record it that way? The priest had a posture of worship. He stood. He didn't sit. In the tabernacle complex, in the temple complex, the mercy seat was not a place for the priest to rest. That was a metaphor where God's rest was, and we approached him through the high priest once a year. Well, Joshua is standing because he's worshiping, but notice Satan is standing. Don't miss this. It's so important to what he's saying. This is the temple complex was designed for the glory of God to reside there, to represent God's chosen people, God's covenant promises to them. And Joshua is standing there and Zachariah is giving this information to us. They're both standing. Secondly is the rebuke, that the Lord rebukes you. Twice we find this word, rebuke, rebuke. He chose Jerusalem. He chose Israel. He's rebuking Satan. You got to see this juxtaposition. As I mentioned earlier, he didn't choose Israel because they were better than other people. I I would strongly argue he chose them because they were just like the rest of us, but maybe a little more so. Maybe they're a little bit rough around the edges. And again, they're called a stubborn and stiff-necked people. So he chooses them out of his grace, out of his divine plan that we will not understand on this side of eternity. And he's rebuking Satan because he chose these people. You don't understand what I've done, Satan. I chose this piece of land. I chose these people. That's where I'm putting my name, and I'm going to shut you up. That's a really good way to understand the phrase rebuke. God chose these people, but notice they're a brand plucked from a fire. It's a great image. uh, A lot of people uh, on their Instagram accounts have their little fires at night. They have their fire pits. uh, We love having our fire pits, right? We like to dig around and fuss with it and sit back and watch the sparks fly up and go inside smelling like smoke, Uh, but we love having fires. You got a a brand, a, a stick, and it started to catch on fire, and you pull it out, and when you separate it from the fire, it goes out. It cannot stay lit without more fuel around it, right? A great image from antiquity to today is a brand plucked from the fire, and you might know that that occurs in a lot of places in the Bible. In Amos chapter four verse eleven, it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and that Israel was a brand plucked from the fire. They should have been destroyed, but God had mercy, and so when He snatches something out of the blaze, He's saving it from certain destruction. Did Israel deserve to be destroyed? Yes. Why does he save them? Because they were better? Because they repented? Because he chose them. This is such an important lesson. We'll talk more about it later. When God rebukes, there's no defense. When God rebukes Satan or any of us, there is, you can't come back and say something else. Um, if you uh, have the um, time or interest and you watch White House press briefings, and you watch these reporters ask some very interesting questions. Um, There's times when if if you were the president or the vice president or the uh, press secretary, you'd like to rebuke the person who asked those questions. Just shut them up, right? But you can't do that because we're a civil nation. We're supposed to be a a republic, live in a democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to God, there's no defense. When God speaks, you can't say, well, wait a minute, Lord. I disagree with you on that. You've been unfair. You've been unkind. You've not given us enough mercy. And when you read the rebuke coming from God, a chill ought to run down your spine. He's rebuked Satan. Twice it's mentioned in the text. The Lord rebuke you. He's chosen Jerusalem. He rebukes him. You can't say this about my choices, my not because they were better, but because, because God chose them. God spared them. I use the CPCP, covenant promise chosen people, write that down on your margin, put it somewhere, you remember, CPCP, covenant promise, chosen people. When God chose these people, and he made a covenant promise that cannot change, that cannot change, and that's why I believe Israel and the Jew still play a role, even though they denied the Messiah, even though in the first century when Jesus was alive, they denied him, many believed, And many still believe. And it's not a matter of where we were born or our DNA. It's a matter of, do you trust in him? And he chose people and he made a covenant promise and that cannot be changed. Verses three of Zechariah chapter three, three and four. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to them, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. So we have this, first of all, the angel of the Lord. We have these two standing in front of him. Joshua's worshiping God. Satan is accusing God. Now we have this rebuke. You can't say this about my word and my covenant. And now we have this picture. Although Joshua's standing, we're told he has filthy garments. A priest can't have filthy garments. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful metaphor. Some people see this as a sign of mourning because we do have the reference to mourning. I think it's a sign of his sin representing the nation's sin. The high priest had to go in without sin. The high priest had to go through an extraordinary ritual before he could go into the Holy of Holies that one time a year. Or he'd be struck dead. You remember they had bells on the tassels of his his tallit so that if he stopped making noise, uh, they called him, make sure he's okay. Uh, They tie a rope around his leg. In the event he had sin, he dropped dead in the Holy of Holies. Who's going to go in there and get a dead body out? You tie a rope on the guy, you pull him out. You're before the Holy of Holies. And Joshua's standing there with sin on. His garments are filthy. He can't do anything about it someone else has to remedy his situation. And that's when God says to take those things, remove those filthy garments, verse four, from him. See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. So this sign of iniquity and sin, maybe mourning before God, only God can fix that. And think about the worship process. Man can't even approach God the right way. It takes someone else to do it for him. Fourth, we have the angel of the Lord commanding other angels to remove this clothing. And this is, this is kind of cool imagery. I think it's literal, but it's imagery for us to see what's happening in the storyline. Don't miss the obvious. I have taken away your sins and I will clothe you. Again, it wasn't his ability to take the sin condition away. Well, let's look at three lessons from the book of Zechariah. Hopefully it gets you uh, interested in reading it on your own, perhaps this week. It's a short book. It won't take you long. Um, the first one is a lesson that would apply to many books of the Bible, but it stands out to me very loud and clear. It's hard to overstate the importance of obedience. Uh, we live in interesting times. I don't think we're unique, in, in many respects, nothing is new under the sun But any parent uh, who's raising children, you want your child to obey you. You want him or her to do what you've asked or told them right away. Not argue with you, not debate about it, not make excuses, not lie. Um, Did you clean your room? Yes. And they didn't clean their room. They shoved it under the bed. Did you hit your brother? No. And you did. I mean, parents, God is teaching us the most obvious lessons on the planet. You want those under your authority to obey you for good. It's that simple. We have gotten to a place because our culture worships identity, our culture worships our personal rights, our culture worships our heart, the way we feel. We have gone crazy theologically. God cares about your and my obedience far more than we understand. We can play the the dangerous game, will he'll always forgive me? Yeah, he will. First John 1, 9 is our get out of jail free card, right? What does Paul say about this in Romans? Continue in sin, the grace may increase, Romans 6, 1. May it never be. You missed the whole point. Why would you live in sin with this notion you can become forgiven? Because sin has consequences. You will never regret obeying God. You will never regret obeying God. The outcome's always gonna be better when we run to obedience. I love what Boa and Wilkerson said, future blessing was contingent upon present obedience. That's a lesson for me. That's a lesson I wrote down in my Bible. Future blessing is contingent upon present obedience. Do I run to obey? Your obedience and mine is far more important than we may understand. The temple complex is hard for us to get an image of um, if you've been to the nation's capital, the White House, the 17 acres, some buildings in downtown Washington, D.C., which you should do at some point in your life. It's a wonderful thing to see our country's heritage. Um, and there's all sorts of stories about all these buildings. Um, Israel's temple complex was not the nation's capital with the little dose of religion. Israel's temple complex was the theological centerpiece for the world. It wasn't just a place of power and politics and money. It was the theological centerpiece of the world. This is how you worship God. You must do it his way. You can't do it any other way. And the exclusivity of the temple was the centerpiece of your life you have abandoned for your own home. Remember Haggai talks about your living in your own houses are built and the the home of the Lord, quote unquote, is unbuilt, unrepaired. This picture of looking to a future where this complex is going to bedazzle the planet. We talk about the eight wonders of the world, the nine wonders of the world, or however many we're up to now. Uh, This will be the wonder of all eternity. The temple complex is God intended, and what it will look like in the eschaton will blow our minds, both our human minds and our eternal minds that we have when we step across that threshold. They're going to have recurring foreign invasions. They're going to have problems, wars, battles, all because of one thing. They didn't obey. They didn't obey. Think if we could stop all wars, we could stop all conflict around the globe if we just obey. Now, we can't because we live in a fallen world. This isn't a theocracy. We're not living under God's rule and God's reign in our country. But that was the image he gave them. If you will obey me, if you will obey me. I'll take care of all this. Lost opportunities. Secondly, rebuilding is both literal and spiritual. And again, it's too easy to miss. Some of these lessons are so obvious we run over them because we don't stop to think about it. For Zechariah, the temple complex was a physical place they had to rebuild. It was designed by God, the uh, blueprints, if you will, the Levitical priest had, how the measurements of it, the implements, uh, what was gold, what was bronze, all the ornate designs, the candelabras, the altars for, for killing, the basins that held water for washing. It was a very detailed prescription, a building blueprint for the place where God would have his glory, the place where sacrifice could occur. If they didn't physically rebuild that, they're spiritually not being rebuilt. And that was the connection, that was what they would miss. Uh, For God to have a presence among his people, they they didn't have to have the temple for God to be with them, but that's what God prescribed. He said, you go do this, and they didn't obey. And so it's it's a rebuilding, literally, if you do this, you're putting your priorities in line. You're putting, we might say, God first in your day. And you need to get the temple restored because rebuilding that has literal and spiritual implications. And this is where the measuring line and the plumb line become important. If you're going to build something or rebuild something, you better have a good tape. You better have a good scale or a good measurement. You know, in the United States Bureau of Measurements, I think that's what it's called, they actually have the ruler They have the standard for a ruler and a yardstick and so forth. And so if you're going to manufacture rulers today, we do it on our phones, but if you want a literal scale or a tape, you have to measure it against something. Think of having, uh, if you sew fabric or if you're a carpenter or you work with pipe and you cut pipe for plumbing, well, what's the the rule? Uh, Measure once, cut twice. No, measure twice, cut once. You got to have a measuring line to make sure it's going to fit. You can always cut off more, but if you cut it too short, you can't fix it. The measuring line, the plumb line, was a picture of you have to rebuild this to a standard. It can't just be the way you and I think it looks good. Oh, I don't like that. Let's, let's taper the roof. Let's change it. Let's make a bigger floor plan or let's add a room. Nope. You do this according to God's blueprint. And so that image of Zechariah of rebuilding the people, rebuilding their spiritual, literal condition, the spiritual condition and the literal condition of the complex, you have to have the right measurement. And again, you can blow past this pretty quickly if you don't uh, stop and think about it. Um, One final observation about that. Um, What are you rebuilding? Something that was broken. You're repairing something that needs attention. Uh, many of us have taken on projects in the last few weeks because we might have a little more time and margin if you can get the supplies you need. Uh, and you're, you're building things, you're fixing things. And, and there's a, isn't there a great sense of accomplishment when you fix something? When you rebuild it, when you repaint it, when you add something on, when you, uh, a friend I uh, saw on their Instagram feed, they were taking their deck apart and they were fixing some rails and they're going to eventually put concrete in, but they said, for now, we're just going to do this. And the sense of accomplishment when you do that is so wonderful. You look at ah, that. I feel so great. It looks so much better. Why didn't I do that a long time ago? The same is true spiritually, guys. The same is true spiritually. He is so interested in you and in me rebuilding our lives according to his measuring line not ours obedience is more important than you I understand but we must obey to his standard and this isn't legalism this isn't do's and don'ts if then it's a sense of do you align yourself with this how often do i pray and the first thing i say is thank you for your word thank you for what this is the standard. This is the plumb line. It does not matter how you and I feel about it. Oh, I know I'm going to make people upset about that. It does not matter how you feel about it. It matters if you obey. It matters if you align yourself with his standard. Now, I will say, when we do that, we feel pretty good about it. Our feelings to justify our sin behavior is where we get in trouble. Our feelings to reinterpret the Bible, to change the measurement If you change the measurement uh, on a dress pattern or a blouse pattern, you're gonna have a wonky product. It's not gonna fit well. It's not gonna line up. Same is true spiritually and far more important. Third and finally, be eager to pay attention. And I've kind of flipped a passage to pull this out, but be eager to pay attention. My friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson, um, who's a psychiatrist, he lives in Washington, D.C., has a phrase, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Pay attention to what, I love that phrase. Uh, And this is what I think we can draw from this passage. Let me read from uh, Zechariah chapter seven, verses 11 and 12. And you'll notice how I flipped, be eager to pay attention because in chapter seven, verse 11, we read, but they refused to pay attention. And turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing they made their hearts like flint so they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord God had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. It's uh, chilling how bent we can become to sin. Um, Just as a sidebar here, when Zechariah talks about they made their hearts like flint, um, we need to differentiate the way the Hebrew understood the heart and the Greek and the Western mind; those of us in the West, uh, the Hebrew word for heart really meant more mind. Uh, cardia was the center of the person in the Greek language, and in, in, in the whole Greek journeys of Paul experiences, they thought how they felt was visceral and important to them. The uh, cardia, but the Hebrew was the mind. Yes, the word is used for heart, but it wasn't linked the way the Greek culture and the way the Western culture thinks about how I feel about this. I leave in my heart. My heart tells me a heart conviction. That's important, but this trumps the standard, the measuring line trumps what Zechariah is saying is you turned a stubborn shoulder. You're not paying attention. You stopped up your ears and you made your heart like Flint. You've turned off your head and heart to the truth of scripture. And so the result is the application for you and me is, well, let's don't be people who refuse to pay attention. Let's be people who are eager to pay attention, Uh, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Um, It's interesting how the older I get, the more obvious things become and chalk it up to being a slow learner. This isn't that hard to be obedient Isn't that it doesn't take a whole lot of analysis and discussion? Am I doing the right thing in the right way for the right reason, following Christ or not? Am I willing to do that? Am I eager to do it? Do I understand the areas of my life I need to rebuild and repair? And that's always going to start with your time in the Word. There is no substitution of your time in the Word, my time in the Word. And then be eager to pay attention. Pay attention to what you're paying. Look around and see. These are. You could find these lessons throughout the Bible, right? These aren't unique to the book of Zechariah. I want to end with um, a guy named Peter Craigie, who's another Old Testament scholar, and read a couple of paragraphs from him because he lands this in a way that I can't uh, improve on. He's done an excellent job with putting a bow on the book of Zechariah. The latter part of the book, writes Craigie, stretches the capacity of human words and understanding. The chapters are filled with tension, capturing the eternal struggles between good and evil, but locating that struggle in the context of God's chosen people and their future. Again, I've said it several times, things are going to fall apart. They're not going to see in their lifetime a a restoration. It's going to be future, even though they must obey. He continues, although the section ends finally with a sense of God's triumph, it is a dark passage penetrated as much by despair and violence as it is of hope he continues the prophetic message addresses issues that trouble mankind in every generation must evil always triumph over good is god really almighty when uh, will the world get better or only worse will the kingdom of god of peace and a righteousness ever be established in this sad world? It, it is questions such as these that are addressed in the book of Zechariah. I mean, which one of us doesn't look at, I mean, th- think of what we've experienced in this year between tornadoes, locusts. Uh, we don't hear a lot about it, but there's been some significant earthquake activity. Uh, of course, COVID-19 is all people are talking about. I have a rule that I've implemented the last couple of days. It doesn't work very well. Let's stop talking about COVID-19. Let's stop talking about this nonsense. At some point, this is not all there is to life. And these questions plague mankind from antiquity to today. Will God ever stop war? Will he ever stop evil? Will he ever fix all these things? Craigie continues, they are answered from the perspective of faith in God and hope in God's future. I wanna stop there. That's not the answer we want. That's the answer we get. And this is where we're aligning our thinking, not the way we feel about God's future. They're answered from the perspective of faith in God and hope in God's future. But insofar as the book contains answered, they are addressed from faith to faith. I believe him. I believe him. I believe him. The outcomes aren't what I want. I still believe him. I don't like the way this is working out. I don't like the hurts I'm going through. I still trust him. I don't like that my husband or wife has broken my heart. I don't like that my my economy is upside down. I don't like where my job is. From faith to faith, that's what he's looking for. And insofar as those answers pertain to, in part, to a future world, they are expressed in language which is difficult to interpret, but breathes nevertheless with an ultimate hope in God that cannot be destroyed an ultimate hope in God that cannot be destroyed. This is faith to faith. Uh, you, you heard the cliche, we've won the war but we're gonna still be in the battle. Maybe it's worn out, it's a pretty good reminder. Why do we ever think life is gonna work a certain way? Why do we ever think that sinful people in a fallen world in a fallen context we're gonna somehow be better by more education or more money or more of this or more math? They're not, just like they were in antiquity. And you and I may see brighter, I hope we do. I pray we see brighter futures. Maybe we struggle, maybe you struggle, maybe people you love struggle deeply. Um, But do you have faith to faith? Do you trust him no matter your circumstance? That is the reality of faith. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for us to check boxes to be spiritual. He goes, will you trust me when you don't understand? Doesn't that go back to obedience with your kid? When you're teaching your son or daughter to brush their teeth, Did you brush your teeth? Yes. What do you say? Let me smell your breath. You need to go brush your teeth longer. I brushed my teeth, Mom. Big argument ensues. So you buy fancy toothbrushes and toothpaste that tastes like sugar, and we try everything in the world. And it's such a torturous thing to make our children brush their teeth. Why? We're trying to keep them from future problems with their dental work, right? Learn to brush your teeth early in life. You're gonna have a beautiful smile all your life. You might have all your chompers when you get old like me. Take care of them. I don't want to take care of them. Is it for their good? Yes. Do they like it? No. No child ever liked brushing his or her teeth, period. You still teach them. Silly illustration. Do you believe the authority above you when he says, trust me, have faith in me, rest in me? I've got the future buttoned down. I've got an eschatological future that's perfect. It'll blow your mind just Trust me. That's the message of the book of Zechariah.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at MichaelInContext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. Thank you.